Kneeling over a fresh grave, somewhere in the forest, a young girl, tears running down her face, prayed, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, but I do want, she whispered. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, but I am afraid. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. She said, we need a miracle. Thy loving kindness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And she managed to get out. But I'd like to get more of this life first. If you don't help us, we're all going to die. Please, just one miracle. Amen. And that's when we hear the hooves of a pale horse clomping through the snow and a mysterious rider on his back. Clint Eastwood has a way of standing in the middle of town and striking fear and trembling in the hearts of those thugs who thought that their guns gave them the right to push all these good people around. It didn't take long, though, for, these, for them to figure out that while they may be fast, he was faster. They might be strong, but he was stronger. They might have had this town wrapped around their little finger, but not anymore. There was a new sheriff in town. I love those kind of stories, don't you? <laughs> stories where the big guys were lording it over everyone, and then they have that moment where they come face to face with the one who's really in charge. And you see this fear wash over their faces. I love those kind of stories. But what I'm not such a fan of is when that happens to me. <laughs> when I'm the one whose pride and bad motives are dragged out into the street and exposed for everyone else to see. When my authority and my power is seen to be nothing in light of someone else's power and authority. Wouldn't you agree? Are you there with me? In the Gospel of Mark, we see a stranger has blown into town. Yeah, he, he may have grown up there, but for years, for 30 years or so, he has flown under the radar. And now all of a sudden, he's stirring things up. Waves are beginning to form. Things are beginning to shake. And he's making the big dogs feel rather uncomfortable. That's because when the time had come for Jesus to start his ministry, he didn't hold back. His awe-inspiring authority could no longer be hidden. Mark wants us to see that. He wants us to see that Jesus had authority on a totally different level than anyone else. He had authority that was going to shake things, that was going to make the ones who thought that they were all big and bad quake in their boots. Mark shows us in the chapters we're looking at this morning, he shows us that Jesus had authority over sin, he had authority over tradition, and authority over over the sacred observance of the Sabbath. 
Let's walk through Mark chapter 2, and I'll show you what I mean. Let's look at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus' popularity was growing. It was growing. Whatever damper those 40 days in the wilderness that he spent being tempted, whatever damper that may have caused, put on the interest that was generated uh, at his baptism, all of that was gone as he began to preach throughout Galilee and do miraculous things. In fact, last week we read that he couldn't even enter a town anymore. Do you remember that? Well, after some time being on tour, preaching throughout all the land, he came home. But home was no longer a place of rest. It was no longer a place where you kicked off those sandals and nestled down in your favorite chair with a cup of good tea and, you know, opened up a scroll to read. No, home was just another place for Jesus to be cornered. It didn't take long for people to begin gathering around. So many, in fact, there just wasn't any room in the house anymore, not even at the door. The crowd was so big. But you know, Jesus doesn't seem to mind. We have no indication of him being bothered by this here. He came to preach. That's what we read in Mark 1.38, and that's just what he did. Didn't seem to mind at all, at least until the roof started caving in. Imagine being there. What, what kind of interruption is this? What, what's, what's going on here? How, how long, I wonder, did it take for that, that hole to be big enough? And what on earth must have been going through people's minds as they shielded their eyes from the invading sun in the room and peered at a silhouette of a man attached to a bed being lowered down through the, the roof to the floor? course once the man was on the floor and the shock and disbelief began to wear off everyone must have assumed that either one of two things was going to happen next either Jesus was going to reprimand them for vandalizing his home and then send them outside and say hey you need to wait your turn these people have waited a long time they're here with me I'm dealing with them now either that was going to happen or Jesus was going to do something miraculous. He was going to heal this guy. Well, neither of those things happened. Instead, Jesus surprises everyone when he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. I imagine pins could have been heard dropping to the floor. What, what did he just say? I, I think he said something about sins. And then probably another guy said, oh, I knew it. I knew that guy must have done something really bad for God to make him a paralytic. 
I'm sure there were all kinds of other reactions as well. But the one that is most important, the one that Mark wants us to know about, is the reaction of the scribes. The scribes were those elegantly dressed religious elites whose lives were dedicated to knowing and copying and interpreting the holy writings. They didn't care about the hole in the roof. It wasn't their house. Insurance will take care of it probably. They didn't care about the interruption to Jesus' teaching. They certainly didn't care about the man lying there on the floor. No, what they cared about more than anything else was Jesus' implication Jesus' implication that he actually had the authority to forgive sins. That's something that only God can do. And they knew it. I'm sure they knew Daniel 9.9. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. They were probably also familiar with Isaiah 43.25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. They said to themselves, actually the text uh, seems to tell us they didn't even have to say anything. They just thought it. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? How can he talk like this? They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now notice something here. Jesus doesn't correct them, does he? He doesn't tell them that they were wrong. He doesn't say, well, you know, there's a, there's a slight um, er- error in, in, in what you're interpreting is going on right here. He doesn't do that. Why? Because they were right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What Jesus was letting everyone know, everyone in that house, was that people have a need that goes way beyond way beyond their ability to do even the most basic things in life, like walk. They have a greater need than that. They need, first and foremost, to be made right with God. They need to have their sins forgiven and escape the wrath of God. And what's more, he wanted everyone to know that he was the guy to do it. Notice he didn't say, in the name of God, your sins are forgiven. He didn't say that. No, Jesus himself had authority to forgive sins. Why? Because you and I know he is God. Are you kidding me? We're the ones who have the special relationship with God, that special connection with God. The scribes must have been thinking this. We're the ones who hold the answer for how people, how all these sinners out here could be made right with God. They look to us. They follow our example. Who does this guy think he is? Does he think he's better than us? Didn't he grow up around here? Someone said they knew him, right? He's just another one of those nuts, isn't he? Those nuts that's just trying to grab up attention by making ridiculous and blasphemous statements. What a shock. What a shock it must have been for them when Jesus not only said your sins are forgiven, but he backed that up with what he said next. Essentially, go ahead. Okay. Take up your bed and walk. And immediately, that is probably immediately, everyone, everyone except the religious leaders were awestruck. 
they started praising God and saying, we've never seen anything like this before. The man stands up to his feet. He picks up his bed and he walks out. This is incredible. And everyone must have been wondering, maybe he does have the power. Maybe he does have the authority to forgive sins. Walking out by the sea, the crowds, again, were beginning to form. And Jesus, he passed by the booth of a tax collector named Levi. A booth by the sea, it made a lot of sense because there would have been plenty of taxes that needed to be collected as fishermen were bringing in their catch of the day and selling it off. You may have heard it before, the tax collectors were were hated people. They were the Jewish minions of the Roman government. They were the sellouts to the foreign overlords. They were the traitors. They were the thieves. They walked around in their expensive clothes and shamelessly lived a little, probably a lot better than their fellow Jews. And everyone knew that they were overtaxing people just so that they could line their own pockets. In the minds of other Jews, they were the lowest of the low. They were the despicable. They were actually pro- prohibited from being judges or even serving as witnesses in court. They were banned from the synagogues. They brought disgrace to their families. Their charitable contributions, they were refused because people assumed, well, that this was probably dirty money. We don't want that. Sometimes religious leaders would even encourage people to lie to these tax collectors. Why should you respect the unrespectable? Why should you submit to crooked authorities or or the goons that they employ? Why should you give your money to this evil government when the money could go to to, to the temple? But here in front of everybody, Jesus was calling to one of these guys. He's calling out to a tax collector. Andrew, James, Peter, and John must have been thinking, really? Jesus, do you know who this guy is? We've already been causing quite a stir here, Jesus. Do we really need this kind of publicity? Okay, maybe if everyone can see that Levi has changed his ways, he's turned over a new leaf, and he's gotten rid of all those old shady friends. Okay, maybe that's okay. Wait, what? We're, we're going over his house? We're going to eat with him? We're gonna, his friends are going to be there? Are you kidding me? Sure enough, Mark 2.15 says, He reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Jesus, you grew up here. You know how this works. You know that you can't sit down to dinner at someone's house without everybody thinking that you approve of them. People are going to think that we're in business with these people. Do you really want that? They're going to think that we're crooks too. Don't you care about your reputation, about our reputation here? But Jesus wasn't concerned about appearances, was he? He didn't care if people saw him hanging out with sinners. In fact, he came for that purpose. That's what we saw at the beginning of our study of 1 Timothy a little while back. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. These people. 
these rotten people were the reason Jesus came. Because Jesus had exactly what they needed. He had the ability, he had the authority to forgive them and make them right with their creator. The scribes, of course, they jumped all over this. They said to his disciples in verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is despicable. This is disgusting. That's when Jesus spoke up. And he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I imagine the response must have been something like, What's your deal, friend? For years and years, we've done our best to separate ourselves from the rest of the crowd, the religious leaders must have thought. We said, we'll be the ones who do things right. We'll be the people who take God's word seriously and say no to all these sinful desires. We'll be a part of God's super squad. We'll, when, 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 all it's, when it's all over, we'll be the ones who are standing there getting the recognition that we deserve and we'll watch all of these lowlifes out here be put to shame. We've got a pretty good thing going here, Jesus. But when you came to town, you're making us look like the bad guys. We're supposed to be examples to everyone here, and you're bringing shame on us. You're making us look bad. Now you've got everyone looking at you. How dare you? Jesus had an agenda that was altogether superior than that of the religious leaders of the day. You see, that they were in it to save themselves. Jesus, on the other hand, was the Savior. Jesus' authority to forgive sins, save sinners, that was a threat to these religious leaders. His authority over tradition, which we'll see next, would be a slap in the face. Look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting, and people came to him and said, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? trying to keep a low profile, casually maybe stroll through town, eyes poking around corners, sneaking glances at Jesus and his posse as they went about their business. Someone realized that there was a difference between them and other so-called holy men of the day. Something strange was going on here, or, or should I say wasn't going on here. Jesus and his men, they were not fasting. How could you possibly be men of God when you don't seem to practice one of the most common traditions of godly people? Now, of course, Jesus had fasted. We know that. 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness, he went without food as he was being tempted there. But apparently, that wasn't the norm for his disciples as they made their way around the area. Now, people fasted for all sorts of different reasons in that day. They fasted while they mourned the loss of loved ones. They fasted when they were ill, maybe even when they were going through a rough time in life. Some fasted for, uh, for repentance, 
a sign of repentance. I'm turning away from something or, or some way I was living or doing before, and they're mourning their sin. I'm not, no longer going to, to succumb to these earthly desires. So I'm, I'm even giving up food to show, to symbolically show that. But Jesus here and his disciples here, they weren't fasting, and that didn't seem right. Why was that? How could they ignore this long-standing, widely practiced religious tradition? It's because Jesus had authority that went above and beyond tradition, didn't he? His arrival is what the world had been waiting for. It's what the religious traditions had actually been pointing toward. And now, he's here. Jesus says in Mark 2.19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now when you prepare for a wedding, everyone works really hard. I was talking to someone who's getting ready for a wedding last night. They, they prep the food, they get the decorations all ready, they have to find that perfect dress the, the, getting the tables all set, the lighting, the party favorite, all that goes with a wedding. And up until the big day, you scrimp and you save and you spend and you stress and you're, you're always looking forward, you're always anticipating what is coming. But once the I do's are said, well then everyone knows it's time to celebrate, right? Everyone's cheering. Everyone's celebrating. Well, in Jewish weddings back in the day, that moment was when the bridegroom came calling for the bride. And then it wasn't just one night of celebration. It was days of feasting and celebrating and partying. That's not the time to fast. That's not the time to hold back. Not the time to watch your waistline. That's when you party. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Since the moment everything went south back in Genesis 3, all creation has been waiting for the moment when God's promised one, his Messiah, would show up. And guess what? Now he's here. So stop the fasting. And let's start celebrating. He says in verse 20, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now that he's completed his mission, we, you and I, we have reason to fast, fast again, don't we? We're waiting. We're prepping. We're looking forward to his return. But those years that, those three years that he spent training and working with his disciples, that was not the time to fast. Now, the religious leaders, they fasted out of tradition. They wanted everyone to see just how devout they were. The Pharisee in Luke 18, remember what he said? I fast twice a week. Fasting was a way of, of showing off their spirituality. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 16, they make themselves look gloomy and disfigure their faces so that people will take notice. Fasting was a big deal for them. They're showing off just how good, just how spiritual, just how holy they are. And that's a really good picture of what religion had become for so many people in that day. It was about showing off how good you are. It was about how much better you were, 
how, how you could be pious enough or devout enough to earn God's approval. And Jesus made it clear. That kind of religion is not compatible. Not compatible with what he was teaching. He says in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and, and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The message of salvation that Jesus was bringing into the world it was totally different, totally different from the self-righteous teaching of the day. They needed to stop trying to fit his teaching into their system and create a whole new category in their minds of what true religion was. You don't get holy by wearing fancy clothes, by walking a certain way, by observing certain traditions. You don't get holy by putting on a mask every Sunday and letting everyone think that you are Jesus Jr., the perfect Christian. No, that's not what it's about. And it's not about tracing your lineage. It's not about looking into the past and saying, I'm a descendant of so-and-so or so-and-so. And it's not about hobnobbing with the, with, with the big dogs like I see at some of these conferences conferences where there'll be a speaker and they do such a great job speaking and they're 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 a great person maybe an actual holy person you see the crowds just trying to get to them trying to take pictures with them it's not about that it's about acknowledging your brokenness and your bankruptcy it's about confessing your sin and finding all of the grace and all of the forgiveness and significance and hope that you need in Jesus. That's what it's about. Jesus didn't come to fulfill all of the religious leaders' self-righteous traditions. No, he came to fulfill what, what God had said was necessary for righteousness. That's what really matters. So when it came to their rules and regulations, he wasn't going to be subject to them. No, his authority over traditions, it was unnerving to them. It was unsettling to them. It, it was threatening to them. And as he defied their traditions that made them look oh so good, they began to see the writing on the wall. If this preacher healer man comes into town and if he isn't put in his place, then our whole system is going to start breaking down here, and we can't let that happen. Jesus had authority over sin. He had authority over tradition. Finally, Mark wants us to see that this new sheriff in town had authority over the sacred observance of the Sabbath. The Sabbath day. The day that God had set apart for his people to rest, for them to reflect, for them to worship once a week. When he was given the commandments to Moses, God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, 
or your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or your sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath, it was, it was very important. It was one of those days that, that God set up to help his people realize that it wasn't them that was in control. It wasn't them that was responsible for all the blessing and all their, the good that had come into their life. No, it was God. He was in control. And they could go on, on and on and on, working and sweating and striving to take care of themselves, to make things better, to make ends meet. But no, God was the one who was really in control. He was the provider. God desired that they pause and rest and look to him for what they needed. He was their source of sustenance, not they themselves. But the religious leaders in the day, they had twisted this. They had transformed that Sabbath into something that it was never meant to be. They turned it into a way to make themselves look superior to everyone else. Sabbath observance, it was no longer about worship. It was about work. The very thing that God had told these people not to do, they were doing by bringing in all these different rules and regulations. They had created this oppressive list of rules and regulations that people now had to make sure they followed so that they could stay on God's good side. And there were rules about all sorts of different things, about what you could do, how far you could walk, how much you could carry, what you could cook, what you could eat, how to bathe, what you could wear, what you could write, what you could do for fun. The list went on and on. And the consequences for breaking one of these Sabbath rules, it was severe. People were afraid of this. In some cases, the punishment was even death. Oh, if we could catch Jesus breaking the Sabbath, <laughs> we've got him. No surprise, the religious leaders were wanting to get rid of Jesus and use the Sabbath as the way to do that. Mark 2, 23 through 24, it tells us that they caught the disciples going through the grain fields and picking some of the grain to eat. Now, in the Old Testament, God had a provision put in place for the poor and the hungry traveler that as they were passing by a farmer's field, they could take a little bit of that grain to eat growing by the roadside. There was nothing wrong with what Jesus' disciples were doing here other than to violate the man-made rules the religious leaders had come up with. So Jesus reminds them, he reminds them of a day when David allowed some of his men to eat some of the bread that was dedicated to God and was supposed to only be eaten by the priest. And he follows this up by saying, the Sabbath, this is verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus knew the true purpose of the Sabbath. He knew that it, it was because of God's good love for people that the Sabbath was even created. He was the one through whom everyone, uh, 
was created, and he's the one who holds everything together. That's Jesus. He knew that God didn't establish the Sabbath so that people could earn God's acceptance. It was made for their good. It was made for them to see that, that God is God, not them. He's the one that they need to trust and rely on and worship. It shows us that God cares about people. And the Pharisees had turned it into something that showed that they were superior to everyone else. It's about rules. See how we follow the Sabbath so much better than all you follow the Sabbath. It was, they had transformed it into something that it was uh, oppressive to people rather than for their good. Matthew records Jesus saying here, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees, they thought themselves to be the masters of everything God expected from his people. They were the master interpreters of God's word. They were the high and mighty examples of what it looked like to be the spiritual elite. They were the best of the best. They were the authorities. They had the voice that would stand and silence all others when it came to religious matters. But here's a newcomer, and he's putting them in their place. There's a new sheriff in town that wouldn't bow to their superior wisdom. No, instead he would expose them for the frauds that they were. In fact, it seems he was actually intent on doing that. He wanted everyone to see who these religious leaders were. Corrupt, self-serving, even purveyors of evil. Jesus takes the offensive when he enters the synagogue in chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Do you think this is coincidence? I don't think so. Verse 2 says that the religious leaders, they were watching, no doubt. They were waiting. They were like a lion hiding deep in the grass, just waiting for that right moment to pounce. And notice Jesus doesn't try to hide here. doesn't try to hide at all. He doesn't pull them, the man aside and say, hey, look, uh, meet me out back in like five minutes and I'll see what I can do for you. He doesn't do that. He comes right out and he calls the Pharisees, come, watch and see what I am about to do. He, verse three, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. Why were they silent? They're standing there. They have him. He's about to do it. They were chomping at the bit for this. He asks them a question, and they're silent. And they're silent because they know that if they insisted on their pious rules, that their lack of love for their fellow man would be laid bare in that moment for all to see. The most basic characteristic of those belonging to, to God and having a close relationship with God, that characteristic would be found missing in that moment. They had no love for God, or no love for God's people. No love for these people that 
God had meticulously, intentionally created. No love for the people that God had been preparing a savior for all of human history to come save and who is now standing there, right there in the room, seeing directly into their dark hearts. Jesus is just disgusted. He's disgusted. It says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, stood there exerting his authority, displaying his power, making it crystal clear to everyone there's a new sheriff in town. Things are going to change. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy them, Mark. Mark 3, 6 says, when it was clear that they were no match for this newcomer, the Pharisees, they turned to the people that they hated, their pagan oppressors, and they hoped to convince them that Jesus was a threat to them as well. Maybe they would do the job for them. Have you encountered the reality of Jesus' authority in your life Jesus is safe, isn't he, when we think of him as a good moral teacher? He's welcome when we see him as a suffering servant. We're excited about him when we think of him as some type of genie in a lamp who's going to take care of all our needs, make all the bad go away, make all the good even better than it already is. But how do we react when he reveals himself to be the sovereign Lord who has supreme authority over all things? How do we react then? And how do we respond when he exposes our selfish motives or confronts the self-righteous attitudes that we have inside or when he exposes our lack of love for others? What do we do when he shows us that, that what we really need is cleansing from from our sin we need forgiveness we need that more than we need a better job we need that more than we need physical healing or safety we need that more than the resolution of any number of other problems or are we willing even after all that we have learned how long that we have lived or how much wisdom that we think that we have are we willing to humbly bow and submit when he makes it known that he's the boss. He's the true sheriff. He's the Lord and master that we need to submit to. He's the one who has ultimate authority. Mark wants us to see that Jesus has authority over sin, authority over tradition, authority even over the sacred Sabbath. There's a new sheriff in town. He's a good sheriff. He's the true sheriff. Let's make sure that we recognize his authority over our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we are humbled by the reality of the Son of God who walked the face of this earth and shook things up. Lord, it's so easy to 
to read Mark chapter two in the beginning of chapter three and place ourselves with the disciples. Just there beside Jesus, shaking things up, causing a stir, Lord. But the reality is, at least for me, so often, I'm one of the Pharisees. I'm one of these guys that thinks myself to be better than I am. And I don't like it when my flaws and my faults are pointed out. I don't like it when I hear news that I need to be forgiven rather than me being in the place of the one to forgive others, Lord. I don't like that. But Lord, Jesus Christ is our authority and we need to submit to him. And so, Lord, I pray that we would submit ourselves humbly to the authority of Jesus Christ. And we say, Lord, here we are. We're broken. We're needy. We need change in our lives. We need what you have to offer. And so, Lord, we trust you. We look to you. Wash us clean. Make any changes that you need to in our lives. And help us to walk humbly beside you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being the master and the savior. And we pray, Lord, that more and more people would come to recognize your authority in their lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake and his glory. Amen.